Hey everybody, this is Dan. And this is Bill, and we want to thank you for joining us for a very special episode of Discovering Trek and Trek Geeks. As you all know, the new Star Trek animated series is pretty freaking awesome, but what's even more awesome is the fact that we had the opportunity to talk with Mike McMahon, the show creator and show runner of Lower Decks. Please be advised that this episode may contain spoilers if you haven't watched Star Trek Lower Decks, so we recommend you catch up on the show and then come back here, relax, grab a margarita, and enjoy the discussion. Uh, you know, Bill, we've had some great guests on the show during this five and a half years of podcasting, some amazing actors and some amazing friends. Uh, but I got to say, we have never had a show creator, a showrunner, an executive producer join us for a discussion until today. <laughs> Not only is he a huge Star Trek fan like us, he is a writer and producer on the acclaimed animated series Rick and Morty. Uh, he wrote the short trek episode Escape Artist, which is pretty much considered one of the best of the short treks. And, uh, oh, yeah, he also is an Emmy Award winner, taking home the coveted trophy in 2019 for Outstanding Animated Program for his work as a supervising producer on the Rick and Morty episode, Pickle Rick. But for us today, we are thrilled that he is, as previously mentioned, the creator, the showrunner, and the executive producer for the new Star Trek phenomenon that is currently taking the world by storm, Star Trek Lower Decks. It's our pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Mike McMahon to Discovering Trek and Trek Geeks. Mike, um, been kind of a boring last few days for you, I would gather, huh? <laughs> well, first off, thank you guys for having me here. And uh, that was the most amazing preamble, maybe the only preamble I've ever gotten. Uh, I'm going to definitely have to have my mom listen to this so that she knows how amazing I am. Uh, you guys make me sound a lot cooler than I think I am. We do work for hire. Um, oh, perfect. You oh, know. Yeah. I'll talk to you after the podcast. Then. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's been an amazing uh, uh, last couple of days. I mean, how many people get to say they launched a new Star Trek? Like, it's <sighs> a dream come true. I've been, it's both been my greatest joy and an absolute terror inducing, you know, uh, uh, series of worrying that that I've, I've stepped on something that people love. But uh, most everything I've seen seems to indicate that the the people who are finding joy in the show are, are really digging it, and uh, which is awesome. Well, you know, it, it, this this brings up a great point because I brought this up on Discovering Trek in the last episode as a nugget of trivia, and you actually now hold the distinction in the Star Trek universe of being the only other person to have a solo creator credit on a Star Trek series. The only other one, of course, being Gene Roddenberry, who created three Star Trek shows. Um, have you considered that at all? You're, I mean, not only are you playing in Gene Sandbox now, you've created something on your own that stands alone and that 37 different people don't get a creator credit on. Um, I didn't consider that. I, uh, you know, credits are something that you don't really think about when you're doing this stuff. All you're thinking sure. about is, is can I get a trill on screen or can I, <laughs> you know, where, how angry are people going to be where I put the nacelles and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, you know, when we fin when we finalized, everything got finished really recently, by the way. COVID pushed us all back, and we actually thought we were going to be airing later. And, but since animation is kind of uniquely suited for this moment to keep everybody safe and keep stuff on track, you know, we were able to, to shift our timeline and, and get it all done and, and looking great and safe. And um, so it wasn't until the 11th hour where I saw that that final credit on screen at the end of that very TNG sort of opening sequence we had made. I got to admit, it, I, I was shook. Like it was, <laughs> I, I even after having worked and, and talked and thought about Star Trek for 
you know, a couple of years now of making the show, like it really wasn't real until I saw it on that CBS All Access app. And, uh, and you know, I, I think part of it is that I'm playing in other people's playgrounds. Like I'm, yeah. you know, these characters and these stories and the way that I'm expressing this stuff definitely is, is from me and my experience and what I love about Trek. But, but obviously like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So, so, you right. know, that credit, I think, I think that credit sounds really impressive and amazing. Sort of like that preamble you were doing, but it's really like, it just means that, you know, this version of the thing that Roddenberry created, this, this, this specific version of it, if you, if you love it, maybe say a kind word to me. And if you hate it, it's not Gene's fault. <laughs> so um, I'd like to think of it less as me sort of gathering credit from it and more as me protecting all Star Trek before it. That's pretty awesome. You know, as we're in the second half century of of celebrating Star Trek, you know, it's been 50 plus years. We now have, uh, uh, with Discovery and, and with Picard and now with Lower Decks, we have people involved in the shows that have a passion for Star Trek, which we might not have seen back in the 90s with the other shows. I mean, it's taken on a life of its own over the course of the last couple of decades. And I got to say, Mike, one of the things that I've enjoyed so much with this show with just the first two episodes is the callbacks and the Easter mm-hmm. eggs we've seen from, you know, from the Glavin hand weapon that Tasha used in Code of Honor <laughs> yeah. to the only Nomad. Code of Honor reference you might see in the series. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> and, and, you know, we also, people have been pointing out that Nomad sitting in the closet when Boyne was yep. doing his, his captain's log. All of these references are just awesome. And I'm sure I haven't caught all of them. So my question to you, if you can answer this, is have there been any instances for things that you wanted to throw in episode one or two that you ended up not doing, which you can share examples? Because there's there's tons of them everywhere. Yeah, um, I can't think of an example of, you know, we're not really sitting down being like, how many, how many kind of callbacks can we fit into an episode? Really, the... The stuff that the characters are mentioning, because like, you know, the, the the pilot ends with Mariner joyously kind of trying to tutor Boimler on all these things she knows about Starfleet. And you you catch that he doesn't know about Gary Mitchell, maybe the funniest uh, sci-fi name in history, Gary Mitchell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we the process of animation means that so many people who work on the show love Star Trek that, you know, when we're writing the script, nobody's writing, you know, in the cold open that Boimler is doing his his practicing his captain's log in a closet that has a model of a nomad in it. But then when we're designing the closet, somebody's like, you know, they probably have a model of a nomad, right? We can put that in there. And it's like, sure. You know, like some, <laughs> some artist got excited to put that in there. And as long as it's not pulling away from the story and as long as it's, you know, I have had to be like, guys, you can't put that in there. That doesn't exist in this era or, you know, that, that creature or that, that item only exists in the Delta Quadrant, you know, like there's a bunch of Voyager I wish we could use and a bunch of sort of like Dominion War stuff that just doesn't quite make sense for our show. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, there isn't really like a, ooh, this is going to be my list of things we want to put in there. Really it goes, what are the characters experiencing this episode? What are their emotional stories? And then after that, how do we how do we make sure that it feels Star Trek along with the comedy of what they're dealing with? And then at the very end, it's how do we add all of the kind of colorful texture and the the sort of visual references to it as well that you know that somebody might see on their third or fourth rewatch? Because you know, I the way I make shows are not I don't make a show thinking you're gonna watch it once. Like if you like this show, 
I want you to be like me where I put TNG, TNG in the background on. I've seen every episode a million times. Same with the other eras of Star Trek because it's comfort food for me. Like it's just, yeah. it's just so pleasant to have on. And yeah. so Lower Decks, like it, it comes at you faster than any other Star Trek show because yes. by the way, it's half as long and it's got almost more stories. Like we usually have three or four stories happening concurrently. So we have half the yeah. amount of time to get all of the Star Trek episodes done and all of the comedies sort of stories happening. And on top of that, I want you to kind of get and understand and like the episode the first time, but like a song you get to like, I want you to find something new and be able to freeze frame it and enjoy it and dig into it over and over and over again. I, I agree 100%. And I got to say, in episode two, my head kind of exploded when I realized that Morn was in the bar. Just going to throw that uh, out there, too. <laughs> not Morn. If you go back and watch it a couple more times, you might see... What is Morn? He's a Lurian? Is that his, is that a species? I, th- I believe so, yeah. I believe so, yeah. Maybe. I thought it was Morn, huh? It's, uh, I think it's a female Lurian. But I do oh. think that uh, they do like hanging out in bars. <laughs> I might be wrong. I think... I think in you're talking about the uh, the Andorian bar in Telgana Four, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I think you actually there's a couple Lurians kind of uh, uh, in the background of that episode, sort of checking out the Klingon uh, 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 <laughs> food, street food that you can get and stuff like that. Uh, I think if it was Morn, I would definitely know because I'd be like, "Guess who? What we put?" You know, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> just but, the fact uh, that you had a Lorian in there is pretty awesome. I got to say that. Well, that's what's you know a great joy of this is that because we, our show centers on the unsung heroes and and we're really pulling from the lower decks vibe from from that episode of TNG right. is we like to take things that are that are established canon in Star Trek and maybe add to them when no other show needed to in a way so you'll see at you know you'll see aliens that come in for, who were standalone kind of at you know alien of the week from other eras from other episodes of star trek that we actually build out into being a little more important for our lower decks crew well yeah that, that takes me to uh, an interesting question um because uh, the eagle-eyed people have noticed some things and i'm going to ask this vaguely and then i'm going to follow it up with something more specific but sure. how important is the tie-in to the original animated series obviously it's been almost a half a century since that aired i hear a couple of um nods to it in the opening fanfare of the lower decks theme um, mm-hmm. it, it seems very reminiscent of the open of the animated series theme, but it, was there a conscious decision to sort of tie in some of that DNA? Absolutely. You know, I grew up watching TNG and all I knew about TOS was the animated series because right. a friend of mine had them on VHS and TOS just wasn't available to me when I was a kid, nor do I not think I, it would have quite have spoken to me as well because I was such a TNG kid. I was born in 81 and I was watching it with my folks and, uh, and I was a Jordy and Data guy. Like that's what I was. So I would have watched TOS and been like, hmm, "Not a lot of Jordy and Data in this show." Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, part of being the first animated series for Star Trek since then means that that show is tied into our DNA in a lot of ways. And uh, clearly, like <clears throat> Lower Decks has a lot of difference, you know, like from, from TAS where the stories are fast and we, 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 we actually change. Like, I think they actually stick to TOS a lot closer than we stick to other other eras of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. We, we kind of, you know, bend, but not break the rules a little bit. Um, But since we are working in a world Mm -hmm. where all of this stuff is, is part of the visual and the storytelling lexicon of Star Trek, and because we're animated, it means that we actually get to lean into 
the animated series even more than than other other you know Star Trek movies and shows have done because like you've seen Cations kind of pop up as textural kind of like mm-hmm. character designs and other stuff, but we we take that much further. Like you'll see in seasons one and two that we're taking character designs and we're taking kind of like the canon of TAS and we're saying that to our characters they treat that as much as canon as any other Star Trek series. Um, and the species from TAS, just, you know, the alien species, because they're animated, it's a lot easier to put them in our show because, you know, if you add Eric's species to TNG, he would stand out, like clearly being for live action, extremely different from everybody else that you were seeing. But if you add it to our show, the animation kind of creates a, a ability for the audience to believe that they fit into organically into our, into our show a little bit more naturally. Um, so yeah, we try to utilize, we try to utilize species and I don't know if the music, you know, Chris Westlake, our composer, I told him like, be inspired by, but make something new. And that TNG was my era and that, you know, he's a film composer and he loves Horner and he loves, I'm not even gonna be able to reference everything he loves, but I really love the the title sequence and the way he scores the show. Like I told him. I told him, like, do what you think is right. Make sure it feels not too nostalgic, not like we're parodying anything, but that it's inspired by the same sort of feelings that that era gives you. And then on top of it, the music doesn't get to have a comedic opinion. The music thinks it's a full-on dramatic Star Trek show, and only our characters and the jokes betray that it's not. Um, But, you know, from TAS, it's true that, like, we have, you know, you guys might have seen in, in episode two, we have that Vendorian show up and the yep. sound it makes and the actual visual transition of it, of it changing shape. I, you know, we were like, we should, we should honor and do exactly yep. as close as we can to the original animated series. And whenever that stuff pops up, we try to do that. So it looks like, well, I, let me say at the end of episode one on CBS All Access, there's a uh, coming this season on Star Trek Lower Decks. <laughs> yeah. And people who watched very closely, like, me <laughs> noticed that there's an alien that looks like an Adosian, which is of course the species yes. of Lieutenant Eric's on the animated series. Um, it, I don't, you may not be able to answer this uh, because of, you know, the, the CBS ninjas, but is that Lieutenant Eric's? It is not Eric's. Eric's would be pretty freaking old at that point. I don't know if he'd still be standing. He, he could be. He, they'd probably have to wheel him in. And, like, <laughs> cart. Uh, uh, your eagle eyes are right. That is an Edosian. Um, but, and I'll also say, I don't know if the CBS people are okay with this, but that he is in Starfleet, but it is not Eris. Okay. All right. Good to know. That's a, just that whole reel of coming this season was just more, uh, uh giddiness from my end as a fan, because it's just, it's all so amazing. Cool, because it was horrible for me, because I was like, "No, don't tell them stuff." Surprise! <laughs> it didn't give away. It didn't give away any of the story points. Like, you know, that character that that that, that Adosian is like is such a funny character, and that plot is so funny that that when you guys finally get to see it, you don't know what's coming with it, and you know, I still get to enjoy knowing that that it is a tease. Like the the nice thing about All Access and about CBS in general is that they freaking love this show. Like they totally get it. Yeah, I've had such a blast making it, and they are so excited. They're like, "Let's show them all the good stuff," and I'm like, "No, no, 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 no!" <laughs> you know, so, uh, so yeah. If I have any critique, it's like if it were up to me, the episodes would just appear like they were secreted into your into your Roku's at night, and you wouldn't even know they were coming. But I guess we have to advertise the show. So, um, 
but even like the print media they've done all the, you know, I got to work closely with them on creating like the look of the posters and the teaser images and, you know, yeah. getting to add these kind of like, I don't know if you guys saw it, but when we were first released the, uh, the posters, we added these, these like folds. Oh yeah. Oh, and people and, were like complaining that they didn't, they, they did a cheap version of a poster. It's like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> like, that was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I ever, it just felt textural. Like we're all trapped inside right now. I was I, like, it was important to me to add like a, a feeling of, um, of physicality to stuff, you know? I have a Wrath of Khan lobby poster that I had framed and it has mm-hmm. folds in it because it's from a, a movie theater in Iowa in 1982. Yep. And I when I, a, the, I saw that, it was amazing. I, I love that you say that because like, I love old movie posters. I love the posters that came in the VHSs for, for Star Trek, which I could never afford. Oh, yeah. yeah. But like they, you know, the kind of like, they almost look like a comic book kind of like pinup sort of yep. centerfold posters. And the... Uh, um, you know, I, one of the first movies when I saw, when I moved to LA was I went to the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica and saw a movie called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. And it just like blew me away. I loved it. And so I've had for years, this giant all folded up and creased framed The Day the Earth Caught Fire poster. And, you know, when you're, when you're a geek for this kind of stuff, like it just, that adds to the, to the authenticity of it. Like not everything needs to be perfect. Like yeah. stuff that's, that's all worn is love, you know? It's, it's one of the things, that, going back to Eric's and his species for a second, I remember with the unfortunate passing of Anton Yelchin a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion about, oh, if they do another Star Trek movie, wouldn't it be great to have Eric's be one of the crew member? And of course, <laughs> nothing's happened with the movies, so we're like, oh, we're never going to get to see him again. So being able to see this stuff that we grew up with, or Bill and I did, because you're just a youngling, um, but uh, watching the animated <laughs> series back in the 70s. It, it's I'm not a youngling! <laughs> <laughs> Compared to it, Dan, you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but um, I know what you're saying is that's the same thing for me is like, oh, you know, we want to make a great show, but we also want to make a, a, an important thing for me about Lower Decks is that the whole thing should feel kind of like you can't believe it exists, I guess for better or for worse for some people, but that it feels like, wow, something, something appeared from the 90s, like the 90s has one more breath to mm-hmm. like, you know, to give you this, I, I love the feeling of like, I, I wrote this this old TNG season eight Twitter feed where I got to kind of Star Trek right. around for a while on there. And I loved doing that because it felt like an artifact from an alternate dimension where they made one too many seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I love the feeling of like, wow, it's insane that this exists, that like an animated show that is that is clearly in love with that era of Star Trek and is so careful and is so is such a celebration. And it's because of the streaming era. Like I never could have made this show without all these streamers that know that their audience sure. is very specific. You don't have to be like, okay, what what can we air at 7 p.m. with these other two shows in our lineup on either side? Like, yeah. where would where would these Star Trek shows exist, you know, without this amazing era? And I'm so lucky that I'm a writer and a Star Trek fan right now, where it's the beginning of, you know, I've said this before, but like. I just wish Star Trek was a utility. I wish when you moved into a house, there was like a funky little screen in the corner where new Star Trek episodes were airing all the time because there's a one cent tax on your fuel or something. Like, <laughs> I, I always want new Star Trek happening and that's what these streamers feel like. And best case scenario, we're going to have a new Star Trek. Like, we're not far away from there being a new Star Trek every week of the year. Yeah. Like, that's like, that's heaven for me. Because then yep. it's like, you know you know, good episode or bad episode, I want to be spending time in Starfleet with these characters. And, you know, whether an episode hits or not, I want to be there. 
And that's that's kind of how I consume television. And 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 so, you know, that's the the, the miracle of Lower Decks even existing kind of fits into that mythology. I think the thing that surprised me about Lower Decks the most when I first watched it, not knowing anything other than we're going to have an animated show, was how un-skewering um, the comedy was. And by that I mean with other animated shows, the comedy is usually very pointed. Somebody suffers as a result of said comedy. And <laughs> yeah. it's usually very personal. Whereas with Lower Decks, it's very almost situational. It celebrates Star Trek. It tells a Star Trek story. But it it acknowledges that the humor seems to be part of these characters' lives. Is Is that what you intended or is that kind of how, what it turned into? Um, you know, humor is so, and comedy is so subjective and it changes show to show. Cause okay. I was making, it's interesting. I was making, it's interesting. I don't know. I can't just say it's interesting. And then you guys find it interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to me, uh, that how different Star Trek is from that, how different Lower Decks is from Rick and Morty and Solar Opposites, which were, I was at one point a couple years ago, writing all three of those shows at the same time. I wow. was showrunning, I was showrunning Rick and Morty. And then at the same time, I was show running Solar Opposites and then Star Trek. I was writing the pilot for Star Trek and then it got picked up by CBS. So I ended up having to step away from Rick and Morty to full time do Star Trek. And if you go and look at those shows, they couldn't be more different. And the comedy, you know, you can change the type of comedy you're doing for each for each show you're writing. Because, you know, not only is the staff different, but like the types of characters and the types of worlds that you're trying to build are so different. For me... You know, comedy's always been in Star Trek. We already knew that, and, and Star mm -hmm. Trek fans all know that. So it, a lot of times I get the question, how did you, why did you decide to add comedy to Star Trek? And I'm like, well, not me. Didn't do that. I already knew it was there. The, <laughs> you know, the more important thing was when you're telling these characters, how do you not betray the feeling of Starfleet with them? And right. I knew that, you know, my favorite episode of TNG is clearly Lower Decks. Like, that's kind of a no-die. And the... The thing I loved about that episode is like how Deep Space Nine said, hey, while TNG is happening, there's all this other stuff happening. The world is bigger than this one ship that Lower Deck said, hey, while TNG is happening on the bridge, there's a whole world happening on the ship as well. And that you can have Starfleet officers that are the best of the best and that are really good, but they haven't gotten to where they want to be. And they're also making social emotional mistakes. Like they don't know themselves well enough yet. Like that character Sam in Lower Decks, the original episode, you know, he is, is kind of trying too hard. He's getting in his own yeah. way. And that's, that's, you know, what inspired Boimler, like the kind of comedically heightened version of Boimler. And so we knew that the comedy wanted to come from Starfleet officers that, the royal we, I guess, I knew that. I wanted it to come from people that, <laughs> that weren't exploring new worlds. They were exploring new truths about themselves because they, they, they haven't gotten there yet. So a lot of the sort of storytelling in Lower Decks comes from Starfleet officers that are Starfleet, but don't, they just haven't gotten there yet. They don't have enough experience. And, you know, they are, they're trying to find out things about their careers and themselves and where they, where they fit into the world, which I think a lot of us have experienced. So I knew that the comedy was going to be coming from that area. And I had no interest in making fun of Star Trek. Now, I think that there's, there's great stuff out there that has done that. And mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, you can satirize, you can satirize stuff and it's really fun. And for me, the, the guiding light was kind of like, I wanted to do what Galaxy Quest did, but firmly make it Star Trek. So, like, I love Galaxy Quest. It's yeah. almost a Star Trek movie. Like, right. th th that movie's almost like, I mean, it's perfect. I love that movie. It never gets old. And 
you know, I was even watching it the other day and I was like, God, that rock creature still looks fucking <laughs> awesome. Like, um, and, and, you know, to me, I was like, look, I'm a comedy writer. What, how, throughout this whole process, I was like, this is never going to happen. It's, I'm going to pitch it and they're going to be like, eh, sounds too silly. And then they were like, nope, we love this. We get it. You love Star Trek. And I was like, okay, well, when I write the pilot, they're going to hate it. <laughs> and I wrote the pilot and they were like, nope, yep, we get it. This seems awesome. And I kept kind of getting more nervous, like, hey, do I have a Star Trek show? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, throughout the process as it was going, like, I kept finding, you can't plan out a whole season from the pitch. And you can tell, like, the pilot feels very piloty. It's a way to meet all the characters. It's also sure. a way of, you'll see things in it where that last speech where Mariner is referencing all those characters and Gary Mitchell and the whales, that was me writing what I would be jubilantly saying to a new Trek fan who hadn't seen enough Star Trek. And I was like, oh, we're going to watch this episode, this episode, this episode. But it was also me being like, will I get a note from the executive saying, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Like, what is <laughs> And the final piece of the comedy puzzle was finding the cast. You know, Tawny and Tawny sets such an amazing tone for Mariner. She is yeah. such a Trek fan. She is in love with Trek. When I, when, when I uh, first heard her audition, when we were auditioning her, and, and there was a point where I was like, hey, will you just ramble about Star Trek for a minute? And a lot of her, a lot of her rambling as Mariner about Star Trek, about things, I just said, will you just ramble about things you like in, from TNG? A lot of that is what ended up in that moment for Mariner. That's Tawny wow. talking about why she loves Star Trek. And, you know, then we found Jack, who could be playing Boimler as a straight man, but instead injects this manic Jack Quaid comedic energy yeah. that breathes yep. such, such like relatable, but also broad comedy to the character. And then Noelle Wells, I remember when, I, when we were auditioning her for Tendi, I was like, I, I literally sat on the other, you know, when you're auditioning for voice acting, they're behind, they're in a glass booth and stuff. And I had really quick, we had had all these sides we wanted her to read and everybody who was playing, who was auditioning for Tendi to read. And I got there like half hour early. I was like, these science, Tendi's in sciences and she's going to have to do a lot more of the heavy lifting of like sci-fi jargon than the other mm -hmm. characters. So really quickly that morning, I wrote up an uninterrupted page long monologue of Tendi rambling about DNA and all this, all of, like trying to put as many sort of sci-fi terms into it. Oh man. Um, and then everybody auditioning for Tendi, I had do the sides, but then also see how fast they could ramble through cold, this paragraph about science. Wow. And, and actually a lot of them did a great job. And the thing that it came down to a couple folks, but the thing that really made Noel stand out was that, she sounded joyfully geeking out over it, even though it was a cold reading. Like she, you can just tell Tendi loves, like she can say deoxyribose nucleic acid, but make it sound like she's talking about a band she loves. Like there's just something like <laughs> infectious about it. And, and then for Rutherford, it's, I've always been a fan of Eugene Cordero. I loved him on the show um, Other Space, which was on the Yahoo, like the brief kind of, Yahoo had its own TV show oh, at one right. point. Yeah. But that show is like such a brilliant sci-fi show. Every episode takes place like moments after the last one. It's so comedically, hilariously serialized. And Eugene played sort of a space marine on it who was not exactly the most intellectual part of the crew. Mm -hmm. But I loved him so much. I wanted to make him the smartest person on our crew. 
because he's so comedically friendly and inviting and just like optimistic. So, oh man, I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. I love the, oh, the comedy, the comedy. Uh, <laughs> sorry. The, uh, but then, so they're all of their takes on these characters. Like we have such a relationship with them that when we're recording, we get everything straight. We do like three versions of each line. And then we, we were like, why don't you just, you know, just go off, give us a funnier version, talk about Star Trek, do what your character thinks they would love. And, you know, a lot of the time we end up finding stuff that makes us laugh because it's the person, it's not just the, you know, it's not funny to just reference Gary Mitchell, but if you have a character on screen who sounds like they freaking love Gary Mitchell, then yeah. the comedy starts coming through. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Mike, I got one more question for you, and it comes from one of our co-hosts. Uh, joining us on Discovering Trek Lower Decks every week is, is Casey Shafsky and Sarah from another podcast of ours called Rewind, and she has a specific question she wanted to Jesus, pose. Jesus, do you guys have enough podcasts? We try. Sorry, we try. We're <laughs> network bosses, man. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, so what are your thoughts on how you have inspired so many artists? people doing their own drawings, people doing their own projects. I can say that Sarah does a lot of embroidery and she's already working on Lower Decks characters because she loves oh, it so much. What does that mean that. to you as, as, as an artist yourself and on how you're inspiring people? I mean, that means everything to me. And the reason, you know, the most, the, the kind of purest version of that is I worked on a lot of animated shows and the, the crew, the artist crew of this show, like it takes, it takes an army to make a show like this. You know, we have, we have, we work with Titmouse Animation, who are, you know, one of the best. They're so awesome. Oh, wait, did I just drop out? I heard a crazy no, sound. No, you're still here. You're good. Okay, great. Um, it's not just like, oh, I've been trapped in my house for months. I heard a crazy sound. Uh, <laughs> um, the, you know, I love Titmouse, especially because I was a huge Venture Brothers fan. In fact, we're doing a, uh, they did a t-shirt of the, of the week thing with Venture Brothers where they made these like, hyper-specific t-shirts that the artists in-house at Titmouse made for each episode. So I begged them and they're, and they're doing it for Lower Decks as well. So if you see an episode you love, there's going to be, for first season at least, a t-shirt you can get that you can wear at Star Trek Vegas in four years and people will be like, where did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we've got this entire in-house team of, of, and not to ramble too much about the artists, but it's like, you know, black and white character designers, background designers, the color team, the board artists, you know, the ship designers, the CG team. And then we have an entire team that's in, uh, that's in Vancouver as well. We have like a hundred something people up there that are, that are another team of artists that are doing it and, and that are, that are animating it and that are, that are providing like this amazing kind of, you know, every artist has their own personal touch to stuff and you'll see stuff where you're like, Oh, I love how Mariner stands there, you know? And, and, it's such a it's such an amazing on any animated show. It's really an amazing kind of you, you need the the writing is only as important as all of the artists understanding sort of where it's coming from, like what the kind of joke is, what the heart of the character is. You know, the directors help with that, the odd the the voice actors help with that, but really it comes down to like this huge orchestrated collaboration. And before the show's aired, my heart, my Grinch like heart, grew four times when. But in a healthy way, guys, I'm okay. But, the, <laughs> but that I was like looking at the episodes and like you've seen, you know, when you're editing and when you're doing comp and when you're doing all this animation stuff, like like on any other project, like I've seen the pilot episode 600 million times. Like I, I know every single moment of it and it's same with every episode. And you just start to like, 
It's when you say like a word over and over again and you're like, wait, is that even a word or am I just an animal making a sound? Like you start to lose perspective. <laughs> and I, uh, <clears throat> I remember my, uh, my co-producer, Brad Winters, who's a huge, huge Trekkie and, and literally sat next to me when I was an assistant back when we were assistants when I was writing TNG season eight and would be like, ooh, do a Wesley one. You know, like he, he pointed out to me, he's like, well, you haven't seen this, but the artists on the show are such fans of the show that they're all doing fan art already. And the oh, show wow. wasn't even out yet. Yeah. So they were all on a Slack channel sending fan art to each other. And now we're telling them, guys, the show is out. If there's no spoilers in your fan art, you know, put it online. Like we'll, we'll spread it around because you're the original fans of the show. That's amazing. And there's like one of the artists does kind of like cheesecake pinups of Shaxx and Ransom, which are so <laughs> funny. <laughs> and, but, but he loves them, you know? And, and, and so I was kind of already getting the, uh, I love creating a character. Like Tendi, I hope that people, if you, if you can't smile at Tendi, like I don't understand you. Yeah. And yep. if you, 100%. she's so joyful and she's so fun to draw and she's bright green. Like it is just to me, like pure fun. And, and if you are, if you're the kind of person who likes to express yourself through drawing or making or crafting or knitting or whatever it is, like, I love the idea that, you know, you get inspired by this show and it makes you want to make something to express like the feelings you got from watching it because that's what we're doing when we're making the show. That's what the artists are doing in their free time after we're paying them to draw attendee. And if they're doing that, I would hope, you know, that, that, that people out in the world would do it too. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the best. I, I think Sarah's going to like that answer. <laughs> so, I, I gotta say, I gotta say, Mike, I cannot thank you enough for joining us here to talk about uh, lower decks. And also want to thank you for the show because I've yeah. said it before, we need something like this right now with everything oh, going on you, in the world. We need the humor. We need the smile. We need the, the getaway. Uh, Star Trek's always been a place for people to escape. And this is the right way to escape right now with the comedy and the animation. So thank you and your entire team for everything you're doing. I think you're going to hit a grand slam, man. Well, thank you, man. And, you know, we didn't make this because we thought that people were going to need a break right now. We were really making it because I think at any time I would have wanted this show to exist yeah. because you're right. Like, personally, you have good days and bad days, but there's always Star Trek. You know what I mean? And I think that, you know, uniquely right now, it is probably nice to have something to to look, to, to, to watch and be happy about or to argue about or, you know, I mean, I'm a Trekkie too. Like, the thing we love, we all argue, is this the best? Is this the best? Is this captain the best? Is this bad? Like, but we're still talking about it. And it's it's very rare to have something new and 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 fun. And and I hope that people I do truly hope it, it is coming from a place of like of joy and me wanting to make it. Like at no point did CBS ever say, Oh, well, we're looking at the math, and it looks like Family Guy and Rick and Morty have a lot of viewers. We should make a Star Trek version of that. Like, <laughs> like, like that was actually eh. <laughs> the uh, that was actually like the hardest part of the pitch was being like, guys, it's not going to be Family Guy, it's not going to be Rick and Morty, it's going to be Star Trek Lower Decks. That that I make shows that look kind of like a primetime animated comedy, but this isn't going to be like any of the other ones. And I think that there's a way, you know, from when you see like a two minute ad or. Or when you see that opening sequence where like Mariner's drinking and cuts into Boimler's leg, it's easy to like be fearful and extrapolate that every scene of every episode is going to be Mariner drinking and cutting Boimler's leg. Now, as great as that would be for me, uh, <laughs> it, it would be pretty limiting. And it's so funny because like that opening scene, my my thing I wanted to do there was 
I want a Batleth to be scary. <laughs> like we're doing an animated show. I want to see. I want you when a person sees a Batleth to be like, oh, <laughs> get it away from me, because they should be scary. And so Mariner doing that to Boimler was my little like. It was a way to see their characters, but really a way to make Batleth scary. And you know, people liking the show, it being out there. The first season, I'm truly in love with. It goes to really wonderful places and really unexpected, fun places. But it really was, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm going on and on about this, but the place where it came from was even before the pandemic, before we were all stuck inside, that this was my kind of love letter to Star Trek. This was me being like, this is my era. This is what I love. This is the kind of TV I make. This is the version of Star Trek that somehow I'm getting to make. And there really isn't, I, I've somehow gotten past like, there's, there's, no, there's no aspect from, from CBS or the executives that I've ever felt like was a mandate. It's really all coming from a fan's love of the show. And it, hopefully it speaks to a lot of people. It sounds like speaking to you guys it is. I haven't been looking online. Like, I don't know what the response is because I'm literally writing season two and I have, mm -hmm. I'm focused on what I wanted to do for that. And I don't want to be kind of affected by the fan response to it, good mm -hmm. or bad. So I don't know what's going on and please don't tell me, but you know, <laughs> I might check in at the end of the season because I think people won't really truly get the whole vibe of the show until all 10 are out there to, to be scrutinized. But you know, the, the, I love talking to you guys about this. And the reason I'm rambling is because partially because I'm not reading anything online and I'm going crazy, but also, <laughs> that, <laughs> but, but that it truly is, it's, it's that this isn't, this isn't a calculated attempt at getting people's wallets or, or appealing to their, to their nostalgia. It is, it is an expression of, of what I love about Star Trek and what I wanted to share. And I hope that's what people are feeling when they're watching it. I, I, speaking for myself, I really think uh, that's the case. Uh, this love letter is certainly well written, Mike. Um, the attention to detail, you can tell that it is something that is true to your heart. Uh, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for joining us, folks. He oh, is the showrunner, the show creator, and the executive producer of Star Trek Lower Decks, Mr. Mike McMahon. <laughs> thank you, guys. Dan, what a great guy. I mean, I can't think of anybody better suited to run a show like Lower Decks. I mean, he's funny. He's smart. He's a huge Star Trek fan. So I, for one, think that the rest of the season and series is going to be just fantastic. Oh, I can't agree more with you on that one, man. Although I did screw up and thought it was Morn, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> his insight is just really amazing, and it's always really cool to get a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on with the series. Getting kind of that inside-the-writer's-room hint is always a lot of fun. So, everyone, uh, that's it for this special episode with Lower Decks executive producer Mike McMahon. We really can't thank him and CBS enough for this wonderful opportunity to talk to him. We wish him all the success in the world with this new show and any other projects down the road. Bill and I will be back in just a few days with our amazing co-hosts Sarah and Casey to discuss Lower Decks Episode 2, Envoys. So until then, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing an original song for each episode of Star Trek. Hear more of their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek is a production of Coconut Media Works. Executive producers Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. 
For more great Star Trek discussion, discover the other shows of the Trek Geeks podcast network at trekgeeks.com or find us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.